Welcome to Science Fiction 101, the podcast series where we explore the science fiction field from all angles, covering the past, the present and the future. We're your hosts, I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And welcome to our third episode, where we'll be talking about all sorts of things, but especially about space. But I thought we should begin with news and new stuff, and it happens to be awards season at the moment, or at least nominees for the major awards have been published now, so I wonder whether we should talk about the significance of those, if indeed they have any significance, and whether you're familiar with any of the nominees. So, Colin, have you had a chance to look at the shortlists for the Nebulas and the Hugos? I have. I've looked at both of them, and I've actually read most of the short stories that were nominated on both lists. Wow. That's very efficient of you. I don't think I've read a single one of them. Oh. So, <laughs> so I, I did take a look, because I, I'm always drawn more to the short ones than to the novels. I always feel that tackling a novel is a major challenge, because it's a, a big investment of time. So I usually do look at some of the short stories but I, I didn't get around to actually reading any of them this time. What do you think? What's in with a, a good chance of winning, would you say? Boy, I have, you know, over the years, as I've looked at the short lists, uh, I found out I'm a very bad judge of what's going to win and what won't win. Uh-huh. But uh, I particularly enjoyed the short story, uh, The Little Library. Okay. It's unique in that it was nominated both for a Nebula and a Hugo. Yeah. You know, we've we've been talking kind of on an ongoing basis about what is science fiction. And this this may strain the bounds of an official science fiction definition, but it is definitely speculative and, and certainly fantasy. Yeah, yeah. And you say it's nominated in in both lists, the Nebulas and the Hugos. I believe so. Yes. Yeah. I, I suppose we should, um, for the benefit of anyone who's not too familiar with them, we should say what the what the difference is between them. The Hugos, of course, is a a popularity contest voted for by well anyone because uh, it's simply the membership of the World Science Fiction Convention. And since anyone can buy membership of that, that's open to anyone to to vote on. Whereas the Nebulas come from the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America, which is a a kind of a writer's union kind of a thing. Uh, So that's voted for by professional writers. And what's always fascinated me is that over the years there has often been an overlap between the nominations from those two awards. So it, it's not the case that writers favour one type of story and the punters favour some other kind of story. There is, there is usually a, a very generous overlap between the two. Uh, but what, what do you think of the awards generally? Do you think they're good indicators of anything? Well, they certainly run towards you know, what is popular. Yes. And I think this year that's probably even more so the case because not only are these considered to be popular by the attenders of this year's uh, World Science Fiction Convention, uh, there are multiple New York Times best-selling authors on the list. Uh-huh. Now that's that's a relatively new development then, isn't it? Because it, it didn't used to be the case that science fiction was a, a mass market um, genre. No, but this year we have Mary Robinette Cole and John Scalzi, and I'm not good about pronouncing names, and mm-hmm. so um, it's the author of Riot Baby. Uh, it's Tochi Onyebuchi. Very good. And, and if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, please do let me know. That that was actually a large uh, issue of contention with last year's World Science Fiction Convention, and I have no desire to continue that on our <laughs> podcast. 
I'm deliberately staying out of the names. I'm not going to name anybody at this point. <laughs> One of the things that um, fascinated me when I looked at the lineup of the Nebula shortlist, um, at first glance, I thought, I don't think there are any male writers in that list, which is fine. I've got no problem with that. But it made me wonder whether that's happened before. And so I started going backwards through the nebulas just to see whether we've had a, a, a non-male shortlist in the past. And I don't think there has ever been a no-male uh, lineup for the nebulas, which represents a major change because in the early days, the nebulas and the Hugos as well were very male-dominated. And as as recently as... 1986, we had an all-male lineup of nominees for the Nebulas. So from 86 to 21, we've finally seen uh, sort of a reversal of that. And uh, I'm all for that. I've got absolutely no issue with that at all. But I think it's symptomatic of the way the field has changed over the decades. I don't know if um, the, a similar kind of thing would be true of the Hugos, but I suspect it would be a very similar picture with the Hugos. Yeah, I haven't looked at the Hugos specifically, but yeah, this year's slate is is all dominated by women writers. Yeah. And given, as I mentioned, that a lot of them are all New York Times bestsellers, uh, I don't think you can really complain that uh, that there would be any kind of uh, slate voting or gender bias or, or anything else going on. Mm, mm, yeah. And yeah. I think that, the, generally speaking, the diversity of the um, the authorship showing up in the nominees has improved in recent years. I, I know there was some backlash against that a few years ago, which I I generally, I, I don't follow these sort of things too closely, but I know that there was um, some backlashing going on. But I think we've come out the other side of that now. And I think we've got a, a more healthy and diverse uh, lineup in the nominees than we've had for a while. Well, and if you look at the diversity of what's being written, it's just amazing. I really enjoy Mary Robinette Cole's work uh, the Lady Astronaut series. Mm -hmm. And her most recent novel, The Relentless Moon, is nominated for Hugo in the Best Novel category. And it is kind of steampunk science fiction. Okay. Uh, I've mentioned this in our previous episode. So it, it reimagines the United States, really the world space program starting in the 1950s due to a, a, a cataclysm. And we have to leave the planet or the human race is going to end. Mm. And in there, there are, there's, uh, politics and relational problems, but also lots of gender and racial stress, which kind of has to be pushed to the wayside in order to make the best space program that can be. That sounds really good. I'm really looking forward to reading those. I've said that before, and I still haven't <laughs> got around to reading those stories, but I'm, I, I will. By, by the end of this year, I'll make it my mission to read at least the first of those. Oh, if you just start with the novella, Lady Astronaut of Mars, it's on Tor.com. It's a it's a teacup read. Mm, good. You could enjoy a nice cup of tea and, and sit and read it inside of an hour. Fantastic. I'll make a point of doing that. Thanks. Sure. I have a piece of ancillary news that, yes. that might interest to people. Uh, one of the things that drives especially space travel is the idea that we'll eventually be able to um, get places quickly. And so uh, NASA and other places are looking at new experimental drives. Uh, there was a study published this week which conclusively proved that one of the, the mythical drives called the M drive is actually not possible at all. Oh, how so disappointing. 
it, yeah, it was a it was a reactionless drive that did not use matter, but just used microwave energy. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of hope for it, but yeah, it turns out that science still rules over science fiction, at least in our world. <laughs> uh, I, I I love stories like that because they reveal the scientific process at work. A couple of decades ago, there was a, a, a kerfuffle over cold fusion. Do you, do you remember that? People yes. saying, yeah, we can do fusion at room temperature. Now, it turned out to be wrong. The, the finding out that it's wrong was just science doing what science does. You know, somebody makes a claim, other people go and test it, and they can't reproduce the results. So then they start testing to figure out why the results weren't reproducible. So I, I, I always find this quite fascinating, but it's disappointing, isn't it? Because we, we need to get to that science fictional future where we can leave the solar system quickly. Yeah, you know, or at least reduce the travel time between the planets or yeah, uh, not have to worry about refueling satellites every several years in order to keep them in orbit and all kinds of things. Yeah. Now, it so happens this week is the 60th anniversary of Yuri Gagarin's first flight. So humans have been in space now for 60 years. And I was quite shocked to learn that it is... 40 years since the first space shuttle flew. Now, I knew that it was. If you'd asked me what year did the first space shuttle fly, I would have said 1981. But what I hadn't mentally figured out is that that's 40 years ago. In a way, we've come a long way. But in another way, for 40 years, we haven't left low Earth orbit. No, we, we went to the moon. And then I think things slowed down. And I've I've often... Well, especially this week when we're trying to figure out why. And of course, it's a it's a combination of factors. There's a little bit of science in there, but it's mostly politics. It's mostly global finance and and all sorts of things, um, which we should probably talk about another day rather than today. Thinking about the the awards and so on. Obviously, both you and I pick up on these things probably through social media but I thought it might be also worth mentioning uh, information sources that we find useful overall for finding information about science fiction so um, I don't know if you have any particular favourites I, I make quite a, a big use of ISFDB the Internet Speculative Fiction Database which is I always say to people is a bit like IMDB but for science fiction mm -hmm. um, it, it's simply a colossal database of novels, short stories, author information, magazine information. So if ever you want to know who wrote a particular thing or what else that person wrote or where you can find a particular story or how many editions of a particular book there have been, all of that can be found on ISFDB. And I believe, although I've never done this, I believe you can download the entire database so you can you can run it locally on your computer and do all sorts of searches uh, of your own, which makes it an, an amazing resource, really. Do you yeah. use ISFDB very much? Oh, when we're trying to find uh, the source work for adaptations, we're always going over to ISFDB and saying, OK, when was this short story published? And does it happen to be in something that our library might have? So we're always <laughs> cross-indexing back and forth between the two. Yeah. Yeah, I, I find it's a great way of locating something because with short stories, 
they're, as you say, they're, they're usually published more than once. They'll be in maybe a magazine originally, they'll be in an author collection, they'll be in an anthology, maybe another anthology. So it gives you multiple um, multiple pathways to search for a, a copy of the story that you're looking for. Um, another resource that I've used an awful lot is the Science Fiction Encyclopedia, um, which is simply sfencyclopedia.com. And that, I, I made some notes about this, actually, because it, it's something that's grown vastly over the years. The Science Fiction Encyclopedia originally was a printed encyclopedia, you know, back in the day, back in the, the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then there was a second edition in the 90s. And actually, I I wrote half an article for the 1990s edition, um, and there's still about... 50 or 100 words that I wrote in the current version of the science fiction encyclopedia. But the thing with encyclopedias, they do get revised over time. Um, It moved online at some point, I think in the early 2000s, and it's grown enormously. The first print edition had 3,600 entries. The current online edition of the encyclopedia has 18,500 entries, and it's growing constantly. So it's an amazing resource. Obviously, there's a lot of stuff on Wikipedia, but um, Wikipedia is just written by average people like you and me, whereas the science fiction encyclopedia is written by people who who know the field very well. Many of them are science fiction scholars or sort of super fans. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a very good work. Yeah, I had never heard of it until you had mentioned it. Uh-huh. Um, and so I was you know, very curious because I, I've actually contributed content to Wikipedia and I, I uh, go through and edit things as needed pretty frequently, correcting grammatical or punctuation mistakes. Mm. Um, and I would do that for the science fiction encyclopedia. But yeah, it's it's closed and curated, which yes. does give it a very different level of uh, respect and credibility, whereas Wikipedia is not always viewed with a lot of mm, respect perhaps yeah, is the right word. Yeah, there's a kind of suspicion um, surrounding Wikipedia. I mean, I, I work in academia, so, you know, traditionally academic people say stay away from Wikipedia. I, I don't say that, but what I say to my students is use it as a starting point. So look at a Wikipedia page, see if it gives you an insight into the subject, but then go to the references at the end and start following the references, and then that's where you really find out information about what whatever the subject is um but you're right wikipedia has this kind of air of unreliability about it even though it's it is reliable most of the time these days mm-hmm. but the science fiction encyclopedia uh is edited curated authored um each article does identify the author just by initials but it's possible for you to then go and look them up and find out who they are um, and most of the contributors are respected and established authorities on, in the field. So it is traditional in that sense. One point about the Science Fiction Encyclopedia is that it's been supported online by the British publisher Golance, and apparently they're ending their support of it this year. So the people who run it are looking to move it to their own servers. So we might see some change to the way that it operates in the future. Um, but I'm hopeful that it will continue and continue to grow because it is a, a fantastic resource. Yeah, even with 18,000 entries, sorry, I'm, I'm probably getting too nerdy and geeky. Uh, mm. my, my day job, I'm a programmer 
for websites. Right. So I would say unless the traffic is enormously high, they could probably get by with fairly inexpensive hosting. But that's that's neither here nor there. They do provide a lot of data about the data. There's lots of statistics on their website, so it is possible to um, see how busy they are. And in fact, they had a, a kind of a server outage earlier this week, uh, which was beyond the control of the people who run the encyclopedia. And they were a bit upset because people were complaining to them. <laughs> but it, it's not it's not their doing. It was somebody else's problem. You know. What, one other information source that I thought I might mention is trying to think of the right word for it. I guess newsletter is the right word, although it's a, a digital newsletter uh, called Ansible, which is put out by David Langford uh, in the UK, and he's he's run Ansible for decades, so it's it's got a long history. What it's particularly good at, it's a very short document usually, it doesn't take very long to read through it, but unlike uh, most of the online sources that are heavily American-biased, shall we say. Ansible provides lots of British information, and it provides quite a bit of trivia as well. So for somebody in the UK like me, uh, Ansible is a, a good way of keeping up to date with what's going on. And you can get Ansible sent to you by email, but you can also access it um, online through its own website, and there's a Facebook page for it as well. Interesting. How often do they publish? I don't know officially, but it feels like about once a month. Um, I'm going to say it comes out once a month. <laughs> OK. <laughs> <laughs> and then edit that in if that's correct. <laughs> Any other information sources that you use? Uh, I've mentioned it before, but File 770. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of my uh, science fiction news from there. In fact, uh, every year they publish the Hugo and Nebula shortlists along with links where you can find... Uh, almost everything online or for purchase. So it's very easy to go find those works if you want to you know, chase them down, read them, purchase them, peruse them. Uh, and there's a, another website that I go on to occasionally called io9. Uh, and I've never really known what the io represents in there, but uh, that, that usually has uh, something of, of fascinating interest on there for me every time I go on there. So I, I recommend it to people. Yeah. I've been recently looking at the Science Fiction Dictionary, which tries to trace the history of science fiction terms through time to see, you know, who originated them, when were they first mentioned, and how, how has the usage changed, and where has it been used? That's amazing, isn't it? I saw that as well. Were, were there any particular entries that surprised you? On our previous episode, I was surprised that there was not a, a very, very early entry for, you know, time travel. There were time loops, time cops, many other time-related things, but not just for base time travel. It, it is quite interesting, that. I heard an interview the other day on another podcast with the person who edits the uh, Historical Dictionary of Science Fiction Terms, mm -hmm. and he was saying that he doesn't necessarily include everything in the dictionary. Because, uh, and he, he gave a long list of reasons why you wouldn't do that. And, and one of them is that sometimes you have a science fiction term that stays confined to a single work or a single author, and it doesn't necessarily have much impact beyond that. Now, I can't think of an example, but you, you might have an author who develops a whole sort of universe, but nobody else plays in that universe. Whereas there are other terms in science fiction, things like uh, 
the ray gun, for example, Mm -hmm. which must have been invented by somebody, but once invented is then taken up by everybody else. So it's quite fascinating that some terms are more um, significant for for a historical dictionary than others would be. And maybe that's got something to do with why the basic form of time travel that you're talking about isn't represented there. That could be, yeah. In our last episode, we talked about time and time travel, and we got some feedback from a listener, Michael, and I'd, I'd like to read what he said, because I think it's it's very interesting. I think it continues the discussion we had about time travel. Uh, he says, great discussion, guys. Thank you, Michael. Uh, he then says, time travel seems to fulfil a couple of different roles in science fiction, In its earliest incarnations, it was used as a device to take someone to a strange place, and this would allow the author to show the differences between contemporary society and this new or old one, and through that contrast, tell us something about our current condition. And I like that way of of looking at it. So time travel as a device, but something that allows you to then examine something in the process. Michael then goes on to say, when I, when I find it most fascinating is when people start to develop rules about time travel, because that inevitably turns into a thought experiment about determinism versus free will. Can we truly alter our fate through our actions, or is the universe a complex, deterministic machine, moving from state to state through a relatively simple set of rules? I love a good causal loop, he says. <laughs> so again, fascinating observation which I think is spot on about the the appeal of science fiction. It allows you to examine issues like determinism versus free will, which otherwise, if we weren't doing it in science fiction, we might have to do it in a dry philosophical text or even a religious text or something like that. It's very difficult to imagine other forms of storytelling that could examine that. I suppose you could write a novel about somebody who is a gambler and you could examine examine their ideas of whether throwing the dice gives a random result or whether it gives them a predetermined result. So I suppose you could explore the same philosophical concept through a non-science fiction means. But what a fantastic way of doing it, using time travel to create paradoxes or apparent paradoxes. Yeah, there was uh, an episode of the uh, of the American comedy show Community, yeah. where I believe they're playing a game of Dungeons and Dragons, and there's a roll of a dice, mm-hmm. and a number comes up, and then the show progresses for about five minutes, yeah. and then it goes to commercial. When it comes back, they're playing the same place, and they roll the die, but it comes up a different number, uh-huh. and everything, uh, the the plot forks from that point and so they're kind of showing a time travel or alternate universe interpretation of what's going on just based on the roll of a die and that's in that's that's not is that a science fiction thing in itself it's not is it the show community no it's kind of a a sitcom yeah that's what i thought so that's quite interesting that they would use that as a as a device also in our last episode we had a competition and we don't have any prizes here, it's just for fun, but I played a mystery sound and asked what it was.
left. And we had a couple of guesses come in. One guess was that it was the machine from the film This Island Earth. It's a machine called an Interocitor. And that's not the correct answer, but I can see why you might think that that was the Interocitor, because this is what an Interocitor sounds like. You have successfully accomplished your task, Dr. Meacham. You've assembled an interocitor, a feat of which few men are capable. <laughs> <laughs> it, that was a good movie. It was a, a, you know, adapted from a book. It was. It, it's an odd movie, isn't it? It's got people with very tall foreheads. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's not an interocitor, but they do sound a little bit similar. But I will reveal the answer. I'll play the original sound again, but I'll let it play on a little bit so you get a bit more context for the sound. So here it is. It was disconcerting to see the sun arc in less than a minute. To see a snail race by. My flowers flinging wide their petals to embrace the new day. And the hours speeding across the face of my sundial. And the flowers closing their eyes for the night. It was wonderful. So there we go. That was Rod Taylor in the part of The Time Traveller in the film The Time Machine from 1960. So the answer to the question, it is The Time Machine. Plus also some of the things in the room around him that make, for some reason, noises as they move around at high speed. So congratulations to, once again, Michael for guessing The Time Machine. I have another mystery sound. If you're up for one of those, Colin, would you like to listen to this week's mystery sound? Sure. If you recognise it, don't say anything. Or if you do, I will edit it out. <laughs> so this is this week's mystery sound. What is this? If you think you know what that is, you can leave a comment on our blog, which is 101sf.blogspot.com, or you can find us on Facebook and simply post a comment on there, uh, where you can also give us a like, by the way. Did you recognise that sound, Colin? I, I didn't. I was very glad that you didn't choose the breathing sequence from 2001. <laughs> that would have been a bit too familiar, I think. <laughs> yes. And it, it goes on for so, so long in the movie. <laughs> oh, it does. It does. But it's riveting, though, isn't it? A little too riveting. <laughs> I did want to talk about space today, because last time we spoke about time and time travel, um, but because of all these space things coming up in the news and the the non-existence of the N-Drive, I thought we should talk about space. So why is space so fascinating for science fiction? It's one of the big staple subjects, isn't it? It is. It's, uh, it's the, I think it's one of the last great unknowns. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when we were hundreds of years ago, the boundary was the ocean. And then the boundary was, you know, the unexplored parts of continents. And we've basically been running out of both of those. <laughs> uh, 
was it in the 19, the mid 1980s, early 1990s, that uh, Sequest, Sequest DSV, the science fiction show yes. on NBC came on. And yeah. it claimed that the last great unexplored threshold was the oceans and the seas. And yes. <laughs> built a, a series on that. Yeah. But space is so much bigger. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, a, that's an interesting distinction there because the oceans, I mean, they're pretty vast uh, by human standards. And so there is still a huge amount to explore under the sea. But space is infinite. And possibly that is why we find space more fascinating than the sea. There, there did seem to be a phase where people used to think that we would all be living under the sea in the future. Um, so I think that that's that's often been there as a, a staple of science fiction. Yeah, you know, either due to pollution or crowding or or some other reason. Yeah, they thought they would have to centralize resources and live in domes or underground or undersea. Yeah, it seems to me that space, because of its vastness, it it has this unlimited potential for exploration. There's there's always. It's not just that there is a a lot of space out there it's that we can imagine that there is always going to be some planet somewhere where x happens uh, so if you're trying to explore some imaginary possibility that can't happen on the earth you can always invent some fictional planet or place where it could happen so space is sometimes just a means to an end in giving you a way of inventing a world justifying a flight of fantasy. But there's also a, a big strand in science fiction, it seems to me, that depends on the idea of the sense of wonder. That's the traditional phrase that's used. The kind of awe that you get when you confront the vastness of space. And and I, I was reminded of this the other day when I was listening to something about Yuri Gagarin's first flight, that he could look out one porthole in his spaceship and he could see the Earth. And he could look out the other one and he could see total blackness and the stars with far greater clarity than you can ever see them on the Earth. Yeah, And there is a sense of awe that, that goes with that. What about space movies? Do you have any favourite space movies? I like a lot of realism in my science fiction movies. I enjoy like a complete science fiction fantasy like, you know, Star Trek or Star Wars or The Last Starfighter. But Interstellar holds a, a special place in my heart. Uh, Andy Ware's movie. Oh my goodness. The Martian. The Martian. Thank you. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the other Mars movies, Mission to Mars and Red Planet mm -hmm. with their, you know, very realistic space travel, kind of near term science fiction, hard yeah. science fiction. I like those a lot. I fully confess to being a, a space geek, so not just in science fiction terms, but I'm I'm fascinated by the real space race and the history of space exploration, Apollo missions, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I'll quite happily read books and watch documentaries about space till the cows come home. You know, it's just something that fascinates me. And I I also like the the kind of realistic turn in science fiction films. So, well, particularly anything that, that goes some way to representing the real experience of being in space. So the, the classic, I suppose, is 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. which tried to be scientifically accurate in its depiction of space. Obviously, it ends with this sort of amazing fantasy sequence, but the, the fantasy is built upon a meticulous 
accuracy in the in the representation of space as we might experience it ourselves. So I think that's one way that science fiction can earn the right to be speculative is by basing itself in accuracy. But I, I, I quite like Gravity, the film. I love Apollo 13, which I know is not science fiction, but it could be. You know, if you didn't know that, that the story of Apollo 13 was a true story, that would be a science fiction film, and it's a very good one. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple of excellent Russian films, which I, I don't know if you've ever seen. There's one called Spacewalker, which is about Alexei Leonov's first spacewalk. So it, it's a dramatization, fictionalization of, of a true story, and it's very good. And there's one called Salyut 7, which is about a disaster on a Russian space station. And again, it's based on a real incident, um, although all the characters are fictitious. So for some reason, they they sort of heavily fictionalised it. But it's it's a very convincing representation of what it must be like to, to be in space. Interesting. Well, and now on TV, we have a... Uh, there's the Apple TV series, I think, I think I've got that correct, called For All Mankind. Yes. Yeah. Which is uh, alternate history, but is talking about, the, you know, again, the, the early space program in the 60s and the 70s. It's almost a, almost a genre in itself, isn't it? And mm-hmm. in fact, I, that reminds me, there's a book by Gary Westfall, which is, it's, it is an academic text, but it's not heavily academic. I think it is highly readable for, for the average reader. Uh, there's a book called The Spacesuit Film a History, 1918 to 1969, and I highly recommend it. Before I read that book, I hadn't really thought of space films as being a genre unto themselves, but having read that book, and he, he doesn't call them space films, he calls them space suit films, because there is this kind of running tradition that goes back to at least Destination Moon in 1950, and probably goes back even earlier than that. But this kind of tradition of showing what it's like for people to be astronauts, putting them in spacesuits, giving them space helmets and sending them out into typically vacuum and uh, zero G. <laughs> Those are the sort of the, the recurring motifs. But uh, Gary Westfall's book's fantastic. A friend of mine was part of NASA's teacher ambassador program, and she's a, a big science fan. She had one of the collector's editions of Apollo 13 that came with a, a making of documentary. Oh yeah. And I remember this sequence that Ron Howard talked about where he was showing uh, parts of the film and he knew the filming location for every shot. He would say, Oh, this one we shot in the C one thirty, So that's actual zero gravity. But this next shot from another angle, the actor is sitting on a plank balanced on a bucket with other people on the other side, bouncing it up and down. <laughs> and his, his attention to detail was just, it was incredible. I, I really love that film. Every time it, I'd stumble across it on TV, I, I get drawn into it again, even though I know the ending. You know, people people say, you know they're going to survive in the end, but that's not the point. It's, it's the experience. It's being there with them on the journey that uh, makes it so fun. Yeah, that's the process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I quite like stories where people are trying to establish, uh, like establish a colony on another world, that kind of thing. I, I guess it's the kind of um, pioneering element of those stories 
that I like. So I'm not that interested in stories that show people living a normal life on another world, but if people are going there for the first time and then facing the difficulties of, you know, building a building a shelter, building a, a colony, I quite like those. Um, there's a, a novel by Fred Pohl called Gem, uh, which is sort of about that. The Martian Chronicles by Bradbury is uh, about that, in part. Um, and I also quite like early works of science fiction as well. So H.G. Wells sending people to the moon by using anti-gravity uh, and Jules Verne sending people to the moon in a gigantic bullet. It doesn't really matter what the technology is. <laughs> it's it's seeing the challenge of how that particular technology is used. Yeah, the technology kind of sets the, the tone. Yeah. And then the story is what happens are all around it. Yeah. Right, now it's time to go quickly through the past, the present and the future. So, the past. One of our regular features is to talk about old science fiction. Well, we've done a bit of that anyway through the episode, but uh, generally speaking, classics that maybe need a wider audience uh, and that kind of thing. So, um, Colin, do you have any recommendations of past science fiction that we haven't already mentioned? Uh, I recently picked up a copy of Arthur Clarke's Prelude to Space. Okay. Is that a short story collection? Uh, no, it's a, it's a novel. Huh. And it uh, was written in the 1950s, and it was seen as being very prophetic about the upcoming space program, because it was written decades before an actual space program and a landing on the moon. Hmm. And there were a lot of things that were kind of, the technology was, was way, way off. But the the drive and the motivation of the people in the program, you know, it, it wasn't it wasn't just a technological achievement. It wasn't just uh, the drive to be there first. There was this also um, there was a spiritual component to it, right? Yeah, and and, and he nailed it. I haven't finished it yet. I'm I'm still reading it, but I really enjoy it. Um, obviously, Arthur C. Clarke is a British author. And one of the few, I said this about John Wyndham as well, but one of the few British authors to have made a healthy living writing for the American pulp market back in the day. And then obviously he was also a scientist and invented the geostationary satellite, which is quite an achievement. Yeah. Arthur C. Clarke wrote a number of other science fiction books. We talked about 2001, A Space Odyssey, which was developed as the movie was being developed. Yeah. And then uh, Rendezvous with Rama. Yes. That's a great series about being in space. Yeah. And that that's an, another one of those that depends on the sense of wonder because it's, it's this colossal machine that turns up. Kind of an abandoned machine, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Almost planet-sized, if I remember. And I'm just trying to think what, what they call those. Uh, big Dumb Objects is, I think, the uh, the term that... I, I don't know when that was coined, but Rama was one of the first books to deal with a big, dumb object. So it's just this colossal machine, but nobody knows who built it or, or where it came from. And there's been a whole load of those in science fiction. Yeah, it's almost a trope. Yeah. I, I've got a couple of recommendations this time. One... I was going to use as a recommendation, but I've now decided to recommend avoiding it 
because it didn't turn out to be as good as I thought it was going to be. And I was quite sad, really. It's a novel called The Big Jump by Lee Brackett, and it's from the 1950s. Now, Lee Brackett was a big author back in the day. She was a very successful science fiction writer, fantasy writer. She was also a highly successful screenwriter. She wrote The Big Sleep for the screen. She also wrote the first version of the script for The Empire Strikes Back, the second Star Wars film. So a very big name. And she wrote a number of novels. I've read a few of them. And there's one that sat on my shelf for probably 30 years and I haven't read it. Or at least I've started it but never finished it. So I thought I'd give it a go. It's called The Big Jump. Um, and the, the premise is that people have made the first big leap to leaving our solar system and they've reached Barnard's star, which is one of the closest stars. But something mysterious has happened as part of that uh, journey. And the book starts off quite well, but after about 30 pages or so, it seemed so very dated. It was full of fistfights and soap operatics, and I was really very disappointed in it. I was hoping that it would hold up, but it's one of the few books from the 50s that I've gone back to and discovered, no, this doesn't really work. It's just not good. About the only thing that was really interesting in it was the way the space rockets were being built in the background of the story. So there was mention of shipyards. So you kind of get this mental image of a shipyard as it would be to us on Earth now, i.e. big metal hulking vessels being constructed. I think back in the 40s, science fiction did see spaceships as being just like ships that would go out into space. So whether they be like submarines or like ocean liners. Whereas now, because we've had the real space age, I think we, we see spaceships as being rather different from that. So unfortunately, I don't recommend The Big Jump. But having invested time in reading it, I thought I'd, I'd at least mention it. Um, but I, I will give one recommendation of a book which, which does hold up uh, and which is to do with space. And that's Fred Pohl's book, Man Plus. And the premise of this is we want to colonise Mars and obviously we're not compatible with Mars so there's a couple of things we could do. We could go and live in a hermetically sealed bubble which wouldn't be much fun. Why would you bother going all the way to Mars just to do that? Another thing you could do is you could terraform Mars to make it like the Earth but obviously we're not very good at controlling our own weather and climate here on Earth so why on Earth would we be any good at it on Mars? So just about the only thing left would be to adapt us to suit Mars. So the story Man Plus deals with a man who is surgically altered to make him suitable for living on Mars. So it, it's a kind of body horror thing. And I can't remember many of the details, but one thing that stuck with me is that they give him these enormous ears so that he can hear through the thin atmosphere of Mars. But they change every part of his body to suit the gravity the atmosphere, the radiation levels and all of that. So it's a, a fascinating inversion of what we normally think of in terms of colonising a planet. And that was written in 1976. And the last time I read it, which was probably about four years ago, it still worked remarkably well. So I, I recommend that. Man Plus by Fred Pohl. Now that's interesting. Uh, a couple of years ago, I watched a movie on Netflix. I, I didn't think it was particularly good, but it describes exactly that process except trying to colonize Europa. 
Ah. I hadn't realized that someone had written a book similar to that. That's interesting. Interesting to know whether there there is any influence of one on the other. It might just be pure coincidence, of course. Mm. What about the present? Are you, any science fiction that you're currently reading or watching? I just this morning revisited uh, a, a YouTube video from a channel that I would highly recommend called Dust. And it it's all about science fiction shorts from mm -hmm. four minutes to 28 minutes. And I think every once in a while they've actually sponsored an entire feature length movie. Mm -hmm. But uh, the, the piece in particular is called Voskode. And it's about uh, a man living out in the woods in the 1960s who picks up transmissions from a Russian, a manned Russian spacecraft overhead. I think I saw something about that, but I didn't watch it. So I, I shall have a look for that. That sounds really good. I have looked at things on Dust before. Um, my, my day job is teaching filmmaking. And um, in order to teach people to make films, the easiest thing to do is to immerse them in short films because they're, they're always very familiar with feature films. It's very difficult to learn through making feature films because they take so long to make. So instead, we make short films. And so therefore, I'm always showing students examples of good short films. So Dust is one of the channels that I turn to. So that's that's good. I have a, a current recommendation, which is a book which I just finished reading. It came out just this year. So it's, it's a very new book uh, by a Canadian author. And I'm going to mangle the pronunciation here. I said I wasn't going to do names, but I've got to, got to do this one. Uh, Sylvain Nervel. And it's called A History of What Comes Next. And the premise of the book is, in a way, it's similar to a Robert J. Sawyer book that I mentioned a few weeks ago, which takes us through some real historical events, but then extrapolates them in a science fictional way. What this book does, A History of What Comes Next, it takes the real events surrounding Werner von Braun and the creation of the V-2 rocket and the American space program, and Korolev, the Russian grand designer who led the Russian space program through the 1950s and 1960s and beyond, uh, takes those real events and presents them in a very realistic way, but also runs a story thread that runs right the way through, which is about these... I'm, I'm going to call them aliens, but I don't know if they are aliens yet, but there are these characters who have existed through a hundred generations on Earth who seem to be very concerned about our climate change, and they seem to be very concerned about facilitating humans leaving the planet. Now, we don't know why, because that's not clear in this book, it's the first of a series, so presumably it becomes clear later on. But what's fascinating is that you've got these these creatures. They're, they are humans, um, but they're all female, and each one is genetically identical to her mother. And there's been a long chain of these back through, as I say, a hundred generations. The fathers are always humans from Earth, but all the father does is trigger the existence of an embryo but no genetic material passes across. So it's only this direct female line of descent that has any significance. And they they are interwoven with the real events from history and are clearly intervening and causing the historical events that we are familiar with. It's almost a parallel history, but it isn't because the history is real. <laughs> so it's not like Philip K. Dick's Man in the High Castle, which takes 
an incident in history and says what would happen if it went the other way, where would we be now? This is actually saying somebody has changed something producing the history that you know. So it makes you wonder how things might have been if they hadn't been there, but it also really gets you very involved in what they're trying to achieve. And I also listened to the audiobook version, and I would actually recommend the audiobook version over the print version of the book. And the reason is that the story is told through multiple viewpoints. And in the audiobook, you get a different actor for each of the major characters. So it it brings it to life in a way that reading it off the page doesn't. So I highly recommend that. It's called A History of What Comes Next by Sylvain Nervel. And I do apologise for my pronunciation of the name there. I read uh, his premiere novel, Sleeping Giants, and, and yeah. liked it. it. Was That was a series as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a three-book series called yeah. The the Themis, Themis Files. Yeah. I should, I should finish the series because I only got started into it. Ah, yeah. No, I, I wasn't familiar with those, but I, I gather that they are written in a similar style to this one. So if people are familiar with those earlier ones... Um, this one would be worth reading. I have seen some negative reviews of this, and I can completely understand why, for some people, this book wouldn't work. And I think if you don't know anything at all about the space race, or you're not at all interested in that aspect of history, this would probably leave you very cold, because you wouldn't be conscious of what's fiction and what's non-fiction. But if you have some interest in that... Uh, I, I think it is it is good, and uh, again, this is where ebooks have an advantage over print books because I I read the Kindle version as well as listening to the audiobook. In an ebook, you can highlight a word. So if you see a name and you su- in the in this case you suspect mm, maybe that's a real historical character, you can highlight the name and look it up while you're reading. And what's fascinating about this every time I did that. The character who I thought might be real very much was real. There's a long afterword in the book which kind of explains all of the, the reality of this. And it's it's an amazing piece of construction, I think, even if you don't like it as a work of literature. To have constructed something like this is quite remarkable. You know, the concept of having this race of people that go throughout man's history causing events almost reminds me of the Star Trek episode requiem for methuselah oh yes yes i think that was that character was immortal wasn't he or or someone who had sort of taken on different guises at different stages in history yes and then and then finally left the earth i like that episode that's one of the later season episodes but one of the one of the better ones what about the future anything you're looking forward to seeing or reading or hearing in the next year or so mike flanagan is pretty well known uh, as a director for doing the horror movie sequences on Netflix. Mm-hmm. The Haunting of Hill House and the one that came out last year, the, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's the adaptation of The Turning of the Screw. Oh, yes. Yeah. So he is adapting a science fiction piece called The Season of Passage by Christopher Pike. And I'm really interested to see what kind of take or spin he puts on it. Ah, oh, excellent. And did you say, is that a series or is that a single piece Uh, just a single piece very good my future one is a weird one because it's also a past one i could have used it under the heading of past Uh, there's a thing called the cosmos 2021 prize it's a 
bit difficult to explain, but apparently back in the 1930s, some publication had a competition where people would write stories based on a prompt that they were given. And I think there were two two categories. I think there was a science fiction prompt and there was a fantasy prompt. So these stories were then published. Now, the Cosmos 2021 prize is now taking those old stories from the 1930s and is asking people to create artwork to accompany those stories. So it's kind of illustrating them, I suppose, or um, almost like coming up with a book cover for, for those stories. I think there's a few hundred dollars in prizes or something. But I will be very interested to see the outcome of that because it's going to bring artists, hopefully, with a, a 21st century sensibility and style but they're almost certainly going to be given mental images when they read the stories that are very much from the 1930s from pulp magazines. So it'll be very interesting to see the kind of hybrids that might come from their fertile imaginations. Yeah, and especially to see the different takes that different artists might put on the same story, even though the stories were all written from the same prompt. Yes, that could be fascinating. Well, I think we're running out of time, as we so often do. So I'll just give a reminder of the mystery sound. If you want to have a guess at the mystery sound, go to our website 101sf.blogspot.com and post a comment or search for us on Facebook and post a comment on there. So all that remains is to thank Colin. Oh, you're welcome. This was fun. Good. (laughs) And thank you listeners for listening to our third episode and I hope you'll join us for our next. We are Phil Nichols and Colin Kusky and our theme tune is from purpleplanet.com. Look for the show notes on our website, 101sf.blogspot.com, and also find us as Science Fiction 101 on Facebook. And finally, please subscribe wherever you find us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Anchor FM, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and see you next time. Mm